Well, one of the highlights of this summer for my family and I is that we got the opportunity to visit every one of our church plants. That was really exciting to sit in the congregation and just soak up what God is doing in all these different places. And of course, you know that one of them is in Boise, long ways away. But uh, woo, and we do have a Boise person here with us too. That's pretty exciting. Anyway, it was great to connect with these people, of course, that we love so much and that have sacrificially moved out to be missionaries from our midst. And it was very exciting to see what God is doing in their church. Uh, But one day while we were there in Boise, we found that we had an afternoon with nothing to do. And we heard that the Idaho State Fair was in town, just down the street from us, so we thought we would get our country on and head on to the Idaho State Fair. Now, um, to be honest, I'm a city girl, or let's just be frank, I'm a suburban girl, (laughs) a native Californian, so um, the Idaho State Fair was a little different um, than uh, what I am used to. It had lots of exciting new adventures for me, though. Uh, I realized I was not in California anymore. Of course, they had all the amazing food, right? Every state fair has got that amazing food, like they fry everything. I couldn't even do it, I have to say. I, I, I didn't even splurge. I, I had corn on the cob. And Mike had shaved ice, you know, because that's, that's his thing. But we did walk by all these people who were eating fried Snickers and Twinkies and everything on the planet. So anyway, and of course, they have the crazy rides just like we do. But uh, there were new and unique things at the Idaho State Fair I'd never seen before. One of them was a live alligator wrestling. I kid you not. I'm like watching them and I'm thinking, whoa, hey, I don't think we would get the permits for that at the Orange County Fairgrounds, right? I mean, literally live alligator with this guy doing his thing. Anyway, I sent Amanda videos because I knew Luke would just love that. I was like, Amanda Burner, you got to show your son this. Okay, another thing I saw there that... um, I just thought, I have to take a picture of this. I don't have it for you, but I'm going to tell you what it said. It was a sign by the ticket booth. Okay, you know those little stand-up signs, the little metal signs? This is what the sign said. Notice, for your personal safety, no concealed or open carry firearms are allowed. So far, so good. Fit right in at Orange County, right? Okay, let me read it again, but add what the end of it said, okay? Notice, for your personal safety, no concealed or open carry firearms are allowed on the carnival rides. (laughs) I thought... No problem. Sling your gun around with you all day. Eat your fried Snickers. No problem. Just don't take it on the tilt-a-wheel with you. Oh, my goodness. I was like, okay, we are not in Southern California anymore. Don't take them on the rides with you. All right. Well, I I felt out of my element at certain points. And uh, I really felt out of my element when I realized why the fair exists in the first place. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but why does the fair really exist in the first place? Because we ended up in exhibition halls. And in the exhibition halls, we passed by row upon row upon row of breads and cookies and brownies and cakes and pies and jams and jellies and pickles. And then we went to the other place and then there was dresses and quilts and knitted things and stitched things and even science experiments. And there were literally hundreds of thousands of items. And I thought, this is why the fair exists. See, because throughout all of those hundreds of thousands of items, there would be occasionally a little sparkle, a little 
burst of color. There'd be a little a burst of blue or red. There would be a, a sparkly star or a little plaque or a little sign all amidst all of those items. And I realized that's why the fair exists. Because these people are serious about something. They're not doing this for the fun of it. They're making their cookies and their pies and sewing their dresses and making their quilts for the day that they're gonna bring this to that fair and have somebody look at it and judge it and see if they're worthy of a reward for their work. Now, um, they have spent probably countless afternoons working on grandma's famous pie crust, right? They have carefully cut out that cold butter, it's supposed to be cold from what I hear, cold butter into those dry and wet ingredients, right? And they've made the dough just right, and then they pushed it into the pan, and then they put those little baking beans in it and set it in the oven, and I sound like an expert. I'm an expert at watching the Food Network channel. <laughs> and um, then they would get that flaky crust just perfect. But it would take a lot of time and effort and energy to get it just right. But then the more we went on into the fair, we came to other places, larger and far stinkier and smellier facilities. Because we ended up places where there were row upon row of crates, cages, and boxes full of geese, ducks, chicken, goats, all kinds of things. And we saw teenagers in bright, you know, crisply ironed blue button-up shirts sitting in front of judges holding their little precious animals, and the judges would have clipboards. And then we were, ended up in an even bigger, smellier barn where there was a gigantic arena with I mean, there were probably a thousand people sitting around watching people walk sheep into the center of the arena. <laughs> and there would be an entire line of teenagers. This time they were in their crisp club jackets. And they're waiting for their turn to proudly walk their sheep in to have his teeth and his wool and his legs inspected by the judge. And they, I mean, obviously at this point I realize I'm not in California anymore. Well, certainly not in Southern California. Maybe some of you Central California girls have had that experience before. Not me, I'm a Long Beach girl. We didn't have any sheep that we were coding, carting around and having people look at. And I realized that these people have worked for years and years and years to perfect a skill so that they could have someone look it over. But they had gotten to the point where they'd done all their work and now all they can do is wait. Wait and have someone else judge what they have done. Would they have worked hard enough? Would they be found faithful? Would they have done what they were supposed to do? And would they be rewarded? And I realized that that day was the most important day of all for these people. Oh yeah, day one, day 120, day 380 in the process, it had significance when I was learning that pie crest or feeding that sheep, okay? But it was this day, the day that they put their sheep out there, the day that they brought their dress, the day that their brownie went in for inspection, that was the day these people were living for and that was the day that was most important of all. And it made me realize that's where Ruth is. She has done all this work throughout the whole book. And now, guess what? In this chapter, all she's going to do, all you're going to see her do, which actually made this a very difficult message, all you're going to see her do is sit there and wait. And that's it. This is the day, this is the time when what she's done will be inspected and potentially rewarded. But there's a time to wait. And uh, that's where we're at. She has already 
you know, swung the bat. So what will the outcome be of her life? She has, at this point, faithfully worked for months. She trusted in the God of Israel. She came under the protection of his wings. She loved a pretty difficult person. She was out on the fields. She was getting her threshing floor beatings done, right? Then last night, she asked a guy to marry her, right? She's done all this work, and now she's sitting there waiting. How will God respond to her efforts when she's done everything she's supposed to? And it made me realize that we all have that situation. After we've done everything we're supposed to, there's a time in which we wait to see how God will respond to what we have done. And I realized that um, as I looked at the story, and you obviously know the story already, I'm not doing a big spoiler alert, you already know what's gonna happen, but that Ruth is going to be rewarded today, okay? Because Hebrews 11.6 is true. Hebrews 11.6 promises this. It promises that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Ruth's gonna realize that today. But all of us need to realize that promise, even as we're sitting here waiting. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. But by the end of today, Ruth is gonna get the biggest, baddest, bluest ribbon that there is. The great and most amazing thing about her story is that God has one of those ribbons tucked in his pocket with our name on it too, that he's waiting to give us at just the right time. Well, if you're not at Ruth 4 yet, I would ask you to get there. Um, it's not gonna be quite as much jumping around as last night or yesterday, so we're a little more straightforward. But as we open up Ruth 4, I actually think we need a tiny bit of a running start. So we're gonna go back to the very end of Ruth and Naomi's discussion last night. We're gonna to go to 318. Ruth has just walked in and reported with that big old, I don't know, Santa's bag full of grain that she has. And she's reported to Naomi how it went when she asked Boaz to marry her. And chapter three, verse 18, Naomi says to Ruth, wait, my daughter, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. God saw what Ruth had done, and the next 13 verses, um, he's gonna motivate one man to step up and reward her, and redeem her, and provide for her a place of safety and rest, and a good future. And he's gonna wrap this whole thing up. But in the meantime, Ruth's responsibility for these 13 verses, sit and wait and trust the Lord. <laughs> And that's where we're going to go on point number one, because we have to wait too. Point number one is we're going to just have to trust in God's provision. As we sit here and we wait and we've done everything we need to do, we have to trust in God's provision just like he did. She did, sorry. I'm not, I mean, I just want you to realize that every, nothing has been settled for Ruth yet. The world is still out of control. She still doesn't have a home. She doesn't have anything permanent yet. You and I can see the end of the story, but she can't. All she can do is trust in God's provision. While the world is still spinning out of control and her back is still against the wall and maybe that's exactly how you feel too. We just trust in God's provision. That's what we do right now. So let's look and see how Ruth trusts God's provision. Starting verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, that's the closer relative, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. 
And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Okay, Boaz is a smart and decisive guy. He's a good leader, he makes a plan, and he's working the plan now. He goes to the city gates because he knows that that's where the city leaders get together. They conduct business there, they advise people, they adjudicate disputes in the land, and so he goes to the right place at the right time to do what needs to be done. He is a good leader, Boaz is. He knows that the people are going to, most of the people in town actually are gonna pass through those gates almost every day. Whether they're going in and out from their homes or their businesses or the fields or the threshing floor, they're gonna pass through those gates all the time. So he goes right where he needs to be, right place, right time, good leader. He's set up there, and strategically he sets himself there, but in God's sovereignty, as we know, it says this redeemer, this closer relative, comes by. Well, I think Boaz is probably a pretty smart guy, and he probably knew that was gonna happen, but God sovereignly brings the right guy to the right place while Boaz is sitting there. And Boaz says, hey, come on over here, you closer relative, let's have a little chat. Boaz knows exactly what he's doing, okay? In verse three, they have a conversation. He says, Naomi, this is Boaz, he says, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to a relative Elimelech, which was certainly no surprise to this guy. This guy is the closest relative of Ruth and Naomi. They live in a small town called Bethlehem. You know what small towns are like, right? Everybody knows everybody else's business. Even things they probably shouldn't know, they know. Um, And remember, as soon as Naomi walked into town, who's she talking to? The women of the town. You want the small town to know what's happening? Just tell the women of the town, right? It's true in the big towns too, not just the little ones. But everybody knows everything. This guy already knows. This is not a surprise to him. Don't be like, oh, Naomi and Ruth showed up. No, he already knew. He knew they were there. And uh, he knew she had lost her husband. He knew she had lost her sons. He knew they were destitute and had no place to live and no food to eat. He also knew that she had a Gentile daughter-in-law next to her. And he knew that she was bitter. He knew everything about her. He was her closest relative, her cousin, her uncle. He knew. Okay, verse four. Boaz then says, so I thought I would tell you, like I'm, I'm telling you, Boaz is a really smart guy. He knows exactly what he's doing. I thought I would tell you and I would say to you, buy it. That's the land. In the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Well, Boaz offers him up the land, and this guy is, you know, practically licking his chops. You see, the the thing is about land, what you need to understand about land in Israel is after the conquest, after Joshua, um, you know, they, they took the promised land, all the tribes were given pieces. Even if you think about our book of Judges and you, when we did it in Bible study and you think about that map we had of Israel, and each one of the tribes had a different piece. Um, God made sure that in his desire was that every tribe kept their own land. It's not like today where it's a free-for-all and you could just buy anybody's piece of land anywhere all over the place. No, Zebulun's land would always remain Zebulun's. Judah's would always remain Judah's. It was part of the protection and the love of God that you would never lose your piece of land as a tribe. 
But that translated all the way down to individual families as well. No family would lose their land. It would be passed from heir to heir to heir, which was a great sense of security when you think about it. You were never going to lose it. Now you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's all happening here if they can't lose it? Um, Here's what's happening. You got into trouble financially, like Ruth and Naomi were. You could sell your land temporarily, okay? You could sell your land temporarily to get you out of debt so that you could have money to eat. But then on the year of Jubilee, now the year of Jubilee was something that was set up in the nation of Israel, which I truly think is an evidence of the love of God. Every 50 years, the nation of Israel got a reset. It was like God went, boop, reset, okay? Everybody's land goes back to where everybody's land goes back to. And uh, even if you were, let's say, you got into trouble financially, and it wasn't just the land. You were in such bad and dire situation that you actually had to sell yourself to one of your family members so you could survive. Now, it only could go to a family member, the land or yourself. You could become a servant to your brother, to your uncle, okay? But you could only be that temporarily until the year of Jubilee and then reset. Everybody gets their land back. Everybody gets their own job and their own place to live. You cannot be a servant of your family anymore. Now, I know you think, well, that doesn't seem very fair for the people that are fiscally responsible. You're right, maybe not. But it was always prorated. If we're coming towards the year of Jubilee, the land was a lot cheaper, okay? If you knew you had 50 years to use the land, the land was much more expensive. But if you're on year 49 and you have to sell yourself, you're basically only getting it for a little while. So it was a, it was a sign of just God's love that you would keep the land in your own family. That's why she's selling this land to her closest relative. You get it now? And she's basically only selling it temporarily, so this guy's only gonna get to rent. That's really what he's doing. He's renting the land for a period of time. That's really what it is when it all comes down to it. Okay. But no one was gonna pass that up because it was the only opportunity you would ever have to have more land, ever, was if someone was gonna sell it to you temporarily. Okay, so he says, I'll take it. And Boaz brilliantly has him right where he wants him. And in verse five and six, Boaz says basically, great, great, buy it, awesome. And the day you buy that field from the hand of Naomi, you're gonna acquire Ruth the Moabite. Yay for you. (laughs) She's the widow of the dead and you're going to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And if this was like a Hollywood movie, you would hear the somber orchestration underneath. Dun, 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 right? You're gonna get Ruth, yay, okay. And of course the redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption yourself, I cannot redeem it. You gotta admire Boaz, he's a smart guy. He hung that carrot out just far enough for him to choke on it, basically. And for this guy to reveal who he really was in this moment in time. You see, in Israel, it was the standard operating procedure that you take care of your own. You got a family member in need. They have a problem. You help them out. That's what you do. We should be doing that too. But for them, it was even more important. And in places like Deuteronomy 25, five to nine, which is gonna come up in your quiet time questions, you're gonna scratch your head, you're gonna go, whoa, this is a weird verse. 
I know because Evie checked to make sure I was right. It is there. I want you to read it. You don't have to turn to it now, but when you do your quiet time, this is a verse that talks about what happens when exactly the situation that Ruth and Naomi find themselves in happens. When someone in your family dies and there's no heir, what happens? The brother comes in and has an heir with the widow. It's not weird. It's creepy. It's not creepy. It's, it's not weird and creepy. It's an evidence of the love of God. This widow is destitute. She has nothing. There is no retirement plan. She has no savings account. She has no social security. How will she survive without somebody to take care of her? So the love of God has set up that if someone dies, his brother comes in and has an heir so that someone continues on the family name so they're not wiped out forever, okay? It's a sign of God's love. And in fact, in that passage, if the brother refused to give his brother an heir, it says the widow can go spit in his face. <laughs> it is so despicable that you would not love your family and take care of them that this widow was allowed to spit at him. Okay, he was supposed to step up. Now, this guy, this closer relative, he's so dishonorable that he's not even named here. You notice that? He, we don't know who he is. You think Boaz didn't know his name? Remember, Boaz is the next closest relative. You know, he went to family picnics with this guy probably growing up. This is, you know, whatever. Joe or Dennis or I don't know what his name is, but he's whoever he is. But the Bible doesn't tell us what his name is. And I'll tell you, the Bible is not afraid to not tell us the bad guy's name. You know a lot of bad guys' names in your Bible. How about Achan? The guy who, after the Jericho's walls fall down, he stole some of the stuff. And so then Israel goes out and they try to take Blythe and they're defeated because he stole some things. You also know about Nadab and Abihu. They were both sons of the high priest who went in and tried to burn unauthorized fire, whatever that is, in the temple and they were struck down. You know Ananias and Sapphira, bad guys. Although all they did was sell a piece of land and say it was more than they said it was because they wanted to seem like they gave all their money to God instead of just some of it. Which is so funny, if they had just gone in and given what they've given, they would never have been struck down. It's because they lied about it. How about Judas? You know his name. You know lots of bad guys' names in the Bible, but the Jewish rabbis, they call this guy John Doe or Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> he has no name. He was so dishonorable and despicable, he has no name. He wanted the goodies of the land, but he didn't want to pay the price. Well, Naomi and Ruth had been back for months, and everybody knew it, and this guy had done nothing. He left them destitute because he wasn't willing to help them until he had the opportunity for a pretty significant paycheck. Then he said, sign me up. Now, there's debate about why. He says, you know, I could jeopardize my inheritance. We don't know. Because he's married, because his kids wouldn't get it, because he didn't want to marry a Moabite. It doesn't matter what his reason was. He's insensitive, uncaring, and he's a loser, basically. <laughs> Just to put it frank. He was self-absorbed. Let's continue the story, verse 7. Now, when, this is the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a manner of attesting in Israel. This was symbolic, by the way, taking your sandal off, of walking around your property. 
That's why they took off their sandals. It was to symbolize, I'm going to walk off my property here. In verse 8, it says, So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have brought, bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz was a loving and decisive man and he got the job done. He took on Ruth and Naomi, by the way, and brought her into his home. He knew exactly what it was gonna cost him, not only in dollars and cents, but in taking in this mother-in-law. But think about the other thing he was giving up. He was giving up bachelorhood. And he was giving up his firstborn. Picture in your mind right now your firstborn. No longer yours. Going to be someone else's. Boaz did that willingly, generously. He did the right thing. It was going to cost him a lot, but he was kind and generous. He saw a need. He not only had given them work and food for months, now he gave them a real home and a future. Verse 11 says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The elders pray for them that God will make them fruitful and famous and a blessing. And they certainly are. We've spent the whole weekend studying this couple and their, their names and their stories in the Bible and like Mr. So-and-so. Um, their names in the, in the Bible for millions to read. Rachel and Leah are mentioned because they're the ones that basically produce the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Tamar and, and Perez, their story is linked to this because it was, a, again, a situation where an heir was needed, but with a twist. You can read it later. Genesis 38, if you want to read that. Then, in verse 13, Ruth gets maybe the greatest reward of all, humanly speaking. Because in verse 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. She gets a husband and a baby. And before you blow through that, like, that's no big deal. It happens all the time. It happened to me. Simple. I mean, I had all these, and I didn't even try. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm just here to tell you that doesn't happen for everybody. Certainly hadn't happened for Ruth. There's many people here that didn't happen for just like that. 10 years, she was married 10 years, Ruth one tells us, to Malon and never had children. And 10 years is a long time now, I know. I lived 10 years without children in a marriage. But it was nothing now compared to the stigma and the disgrace it was then. I mean, people got married way younger they had no birth control. People were popping babies out like nobody's business. To have no children after 10 years, it's hard. It's probably part of the divine spanking of the Lord on this family, right? For the choices that they had made. This was a big deal. But God had brought these two women back to Israel where they belonged, and now he was giving Ruth probably what she had always wanted and rewarding her in a very real way. Now, this is all well and good, when we can see the beginning, the middle, and end of the story, or when it's happening to someone else. But you need to think about and put yourself in the shoes of Ruth and that it's happening to her in her own time. 
because you all know and understand what it's like to wait for something that you don't have right now, that you don't have in the way that you want, in the time that you want, with the details that you prefer. And the waiting is very hard. It's very hard. Things don't happen the way we want, but we have to still wait well. Even when we don't see the end of the story and it's not happening to someone else, we have to wait well. And you've got to remember here in the story, even though it looks like they got everything they wanted, did they really get everything they wanted? No. Naomi's husband's still dead. Two sons that she birthed. Think of your adult children, those of you with adult children. Those two sons are still dead. God did not give her back her sons. Even Ruth, who decides at the beginning of this book to say she's gonna take shelter under God's wings, she doesn't instantly have every problem erased. She still has to live through all these months that have gone on. The problem is not poof over, just like it isn't poof over for you. She had to live through all those days. We can read it in 10 minutes, but she had to live through it. Sometimes our problems don't get solved overnight, and we still have to trust in God's provision while we wait. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that Ruth never had a moment of temptation or weakness, right? She must have had thoughts when she lost her father-in-law, or her husband, or her brother-in-law, or didn't have children, when she left her culture and her family and her gods and everything she knew. She must have had moments of weakness, thinking, what in the world is happening here? Even as she tried to take shelter under the God of Israel's wings, there must have been times when she scratched her head and thought, Okay, what's happening, God of Israel? Here I am. Well, are you even paying attention? You know, I, I'm, I'm suffering here, right? She must have thought, can you even see what's happening? Could you love someone so different like me? So different from your people? Do you even have any power to act? She must have had those moments. I'm not saying she had months and months of them, but she certainly had moments of temptation just like we do. And she did not enjoy all the blessings that we do. She didn't have a Bible sitting in her lap. She didn't have the godly friends that you have. She lived with Naomi. That was her spiritual, no, I'm serious. That was her spiritual mentor and her cheerleader, okay? She didn't have a good church to go to. She didn't know what Jesus would do. You all look back and you knew. You know what Jesus has done for you. She didn't have any of that. And yet she waited well. We don't see any, you know, big blow up here. We see her just waiting well. And trusting anyway, even without all those advantages. Now, I know many of you have had the bottom drop out of your life just like Ruth did. But I know now that a lot of you, because I know you, that you have made it through the other side of that bottom dropping out. And I know that you could stand up here and give us a story and tell us how God had provided for you through the bottom dropping out. Just for a second, if you've had the bottom drop out and you're on the other side and you saw the provision of God in that time, raise your hand. Okay, all of you that are in that bottom dropping moment, look around. Every one of these women has a story that they could tell you and encourage you, thank you. They could encourage you to keep trusting for God's provision because it will be there even when you don't see the top of the, you know, I'm getting out of here. No, the bottom has dropped out, I'm stuck. They will all tell you that God is faithful even in the wait. And in the waiting, God promises he'll give you all that you need, which 
could only remind me of one of our favorite passages in scripture, Psalm 23. You do not have to turn there or you can if you're fast. I'm gonna skim it really fast. I'm gonna remind you of the promises that God gives us even while we wait, okay? Here's some promises. Psalm 23, one says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters, which means he supplies for my physical needs and he makes me safe. Verse three says he restores my soul and he leads me in paths of righteousness, which means he forgives me and he gives me direction through his word. Verse four says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That means he's next to me in my trials and he protects me. Verse five says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. That means even in my most challenging moments, I have more than enough. And finally, verse six says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that reminds me that good things are gonna chase me down while I live on earth. And then someday he's gonna take me to the other side to a perfect place with him forever. While you wait, that's the shepherd who sits beside you. It reminds me of the days when I used to have little littles and we would go to the automatic car wash, right? And if they saw me approaching, there would be instant tension in their bodies, right? As I would head up to the little stand and stick my coat in or my credit card, they'd start squirming in their seats, you know? And then pretty soon that big machine would start pulling us, drawing us into the darkness, right? <laughs> You know what it's like, okay. Pretty soon water would begin to thunder down, right? As I've, I've quickly closed up the windows and it's thundering down around us and it got darker and darker and darker. And pretty soon as the water is thundering against the windows and the doors and then the soap starts being slathered and then whatever light was in the darkness there is now obscured even more. And all we could do was wait, right? Wait. Well, pretty soon those big brushes would start swishing across the front and across the side, right? And it would get louder and louder and louder. And we would wait. And then at this point, probably I'd be looking in the uh, rear view mirror. How are they doing back there? You know, how's it going, guys? Well, you know, every single family has one that's going, yippee, you know, <laughs> right? Some of you, you know exactly who that one was at my house. But the rest of them had the normal sober scared faces as yours did that were twisted in anxiety, right? Okay. Then you got to the point where the loudest part of all happened and the blow dryer came on and it feels like the doors are being sucked off and then the windshield wipers are like trying to press up and they're like looking at you and we waited. We waited. But at that point, there was a tiny bit of hope because all of a sudden we could see a light at the end of the tunnel as we're being forced and propelled through this torture chamber, right? But the light was coming up and we waited. Now, you know, at this point, my kids would start to maybe chat with each other because they could see the light coming up. Okay, you could see them relaxing a little bit, right? 
Now, I'm the mom, so I could see the bigger picture. We're driving out of this thing with a squeaky clean car. It's worth it all, right? But from their perspective, they literally thought they were being tortured, right? That's what it felt like as they waited through the darkness and all the loud noises and all the scary, terrifying things that happen in that automatic car wash. They thought the wait would never end. It was painful, it was confusing, it was terrifying. But you know what they never thought? They never thought I was gonna jump out and run away. They always knew that no matter how loud it got that I'd be sitting there right there next to them, holding their hands, singing songs to them, handing them snacks, saying, look, look, you can see the daylight, it's coming, right? God is with us too in the automatic car washes of our lives. Because Isaiah 43, two is always true. When you pass through the waters, <laughs> I will be with you. And through the rivers, you shall not, they shall not overwhelm you. That was Isaiah 43, two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when we got to the other side of the car wash, as we always did, my kids would say, even at the scariest time, mom was always with us. It's true for us too, ladies. The wait seems scary and long, but God provides even in the wait. Well, he provides for us, and in our story, he obviously is going to provide for Ruth. But when he does, then what do we do? Well, verse 14, we're going to learn about what the people in this story did. Verse 14 says, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the name of the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. When God provided for Ruth and Naomi, everybody praised God. Everybody praised God together. They rejoiced at what God had done for them. The car wash is over, let's rejoice. That takes us to point number two, which is give thanks to the provider. Give thanks to the provider. They made it through. And what do they do next? They thank the provider for what he's done for them. It's what you and I need to do too. Come out the other side. The women of this town were enthusiastically telling Naomi that she needed to be praising God. God had taken away her sadness and gave her a fresh start. Her sorrow had been turned to joy. God gave her a future and a hope, and she needed to say so. She needed to rejoice. The, woman, the women of town reminded Naomi that even though she thought God had abandoned her, and remember what she said in chapter one, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Nothing could have been further from the truth. God had not abandoned her and he'd not given up on her and he had not dealt with her bitterly. No, he had given her a, the love of a stubborn and loyal gal who sat right next to her in the midst of it and eventually provided her with a beautiful new grandson. And the women say, praise God for these good things that he's given you, but also for the amazing daughter-in-law he gave you. And by the way, the son-in-law was no slouch, right? She had a lot to praise God for. She was an overjoyed grandmother who got to savor the goodness of God and have that baby sitting right in her lap. And I'm sure it was even sweeter after the amazing 
and terrible losses that she had gone through, one after the other after the other. The rejoicing must have been even sweeter. God had not forgotten them, and God has not forgotten us. And when he takes us through it, we need to thank him on the other side. Now, I think the townspeople have a lot of wisdom to give to us, because I think that we could use a little bump up to our thanksgiving. And a lot of times we thank him for a second when we get through it, but I think we could amp up our thanksgiving a little bit more than that. So I'm gonna give you, you know, the list gal, I'm gonna give you six things, and by the way, they're not on the slides. They're really quick, so here we go. These are six things that we can do to pump up our thanksgiving, no matter where you find yourself pumping up your thanksgiving to God, okay? He's done great things for you. How can we be more thankful? Letter A, thank him first. Thank him first. Letter A, thank him first. What I mean by that is spend the first part of every one of your prayers, you start your quiet time and you're praying, thank God first. Surely there's a lot of things you could thank him for since the last time you sat down and talked to him. Take a few minutes to thank him before you ask him for anything. He has been good to you. Make this your pattern when you pray alone, when you pray with your kids, when you pray in small groups. Don't ask for anything until you've thanked him for something. It's just a good little pattern. Thank him first. Letter B, sing your praise. You're saying, not me. Okay, doesn't matter. Sing your praise, okay? If you haven't already, you know, been connecting with the lyrics in worship, maybe here, which you're gonna get one more chance to connect with the lyrics. Um, if you don't connect with the lyrics on the weekends, Ask God to help you. Joseph thoughtfully thinks through what the lyrics are. He does it with a purpose, to help you, just like our worship team did this weekend, to help you focus on Christ, to help you thank God. Ask God, even as you're walking into church, that you would connect with the lyrics. How about your playlist? Look at the playlist you listen to during the week. If you need to sing your praise, maybe your playlist needs to be mm, revised a little. If it's not pointing you to Christ, to trust in Christ, to thank Christ, maybe you need to either cut it out or limit it, okay? Enough said. Letter C, another way we can thank God and keep it going is to do what he says. Do what he says. Thank God by doing what he says. There is no better way to tell someone that you love and respect them than to do what they say. He says, get in your Bible and hang out with Christians. So do it. He says, tell people about Christ and live worthy of the calling of a Christian. So do it. He says, abound in love for people and uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't worry. So do it. Thank God by living a life that pleases him. Okay. And then when God helps you in your trials, which we all have last week, next week, in an hour from now, okay. Letter D, thank him even more in your pain. Thank him even more in your pain. When you're in pain, you have the opportunity to feel things you don't normally feel. And I think you actually have eyesight you don't have in other situations. I had this so, brought so clearly to my mind. I took a walk with a gal this week who is facing a health crisis in her family. And as we're walking, I was so... I'm just so happy to say I was so excited to see my sister as she was sharing about all this trouble in her health situation and her family's health situation, she kept catalog for, cataloging for me all the ways that God had gone before them, 
All the ways that God had had the right person there or had the, you know, the doctor's appointment in 24 hours, had a diagnosis, all these things that some of us pray for for years, she was given in 24 hours and she saw it and she gave God credit. In her pain, she quickly thanked God and she saw how he had gotten her through it and given her all these amazing blessings. Sadly, I don't think our asking and our thanking is in equal proportion. And okay, I mean, I'm not, I mean, it would be awesome if we asked God for something 10 times and when he did it, we thanked him 10 times. That would be awesome. But I think even if we could just push it a little bit, that would be good, okay? Um, it's, it's not a new problem that we have in our generation that um, when God does something for us, we forget to thank him. That's not a new problem. You know, when Jesus healed the 10 lepers, they were walking away, they saw their skin was restored and only one came back to thank him, right? Only one, and guess what? It wasn't even someone from Israel. It was a pagan Gentile. Don't let that be said of us, that it's a non-Christian who takes the time to thank God. We should be the ones who are doing that most of all. So thank him even more in your pain. Letter E, next one. To keep the Thanksgiving going, this doesn't seem like it should fit here, but it does. Letter E, share your pain with others. Share your pain with others. The women in this town knew all about Naomi's trouble. Okay, I'm not saying she did it the right way, obviously, <laughs> right? She's a big fat whiner, right? But they did know, and that was actually a good thing, because what happened when God fixed it? They're the ones that are saying, praise the Lord, let's rejoice, God has taken your sorrow away. The, the praising of God was maximized because someone knew about the pain. And Paul says it to us in 2 Corinthians 1.11. He says that we should share our burdens so that when God fixes them, that, quote, many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So if you're going through something, pick a few godly friends and ask them to pray for you. Okay, I would caution you, do not dominate the prayer time. Everybody has things that needs to be prayed for. I mean, I love us women, but some of us dominate. And so pick a couple friends and share your burden and they will rejoice with you. Enough said. Okay. Another thankful lesson that I think these women can remind us of is letter F. Thank the person who helped you. Thank the person who helped you. I mean the human person. Thank the person who helped you. Um, not only should we be thanking God, but we should be thanking the people in our lives who have helped us with little or big things in our lives. Text them, write them, bake them cookies, bring them flowers from your yard, but thank those people that have been a part of it. Sadly, I cannot tell you with any confidence that that happened in this story, but to me it's a glaring error. These women told Naomi, you should appreciate your daughter-in-law. We never hear her do it. We never see her do it. We never see her say thank you. And I think that's very sad and actually very wrong, not just sad, but wrong. So make sure that you don't do that. Make sure you thank the people that have helped you and appreciate them. But Ruth isn't finished because in the last words of Ruth 4, um, we find something that is the most important thing of all to thank God for, and that is the ultimate provision of redemption that shows up here. 
There is someone who paid the ultimate provision for our redemption, just like Boaz paid for Ruth's. We have someone and his name was Jesus. And that shows up for us in the very last point, which by the way, I'm not going to give to you now. I'm gonna talk about it for a while first. But this one, Jesus, paid the price for our redemption like Boaz did for Ruth. Because of him and the payment he made for us, ladies, if you have surrendered your life to him, hell is canceled for you. Hell is canceled for you. You will never go to outer darkness and you will never pay for your sin because of the redemption he paid for you. This whole book of Ruth isn't just a quaint story. It's to point you and make you remember that Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. Hell is canceled for you if you've surrendered your life to him and heaven is secured forever because of what Jesus did to redeem us, just like what Boaz did to redeem Ruth. It's what this whole story points to, so don't miss that in the cute story of Ruth, this love story. Don't miss that there's a much bigger picture talking about God's redemption. So let me set this point up a little while before I give it to you. Ruth 4, verse 18 to 21, finish it out. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And you're like, okay, that <laughs> just doesn't seem very exciting. It's just a list of names. It looks like a Christmas card list or something. Um, what in the world is that supposed to teach us? Well, it's the genealogy of Ruth and Boaz's son, which is actually very significant, and I'll tell you why. It's only 10 generations here that we see. It tells us how Ruth and Boaz's son fits into all of this. It's 10 generations, and it's not exhaustive. Well, I know that, first of all, because Salmon. Salmon uh, says here, fathered Boaz. But Salmon lived about 200 years before this. He lived during the conquest of Joshua, so we know that he probably wasn't his actual dad. He was his, probably his great-grandpa, right? This is the lineage of Boaz and Ruth's son. The family tree. It tells where he came from, and it's going to more importantly tell us where the family tree is going. Now, this list of names is further proof. I know it didn't seem like it to you, but hopefully by the time we get done, you'll see it. It's further proof of the faithfulness and provision of God right here, these names. Because it's more than just these 10 guys that are listed here. We get to see where God is taking this little boy and how he's going to end up blessing the entire world. This one little tiny son, someone, and, and he's gonna bless the whole world just like the townspeople prayed. Do you remember they said, pray that he would be a blessing? Um, he is gonna be a blessing. And we'll see it right here. He was a son who was never supposed to happen, humanly speaking until God intervened in this human family, called an audible, said, I'm gonna fix this, I want Obed to be born. I want my purposes accomplished, which is another reason to remember the provision of God. He stepped into history right here and had this kid be born, because he wanted it to happen. It had to happen for the dominoes to fall the way they were supposed to fall. He had to have this one kid be born, because he knows what happens before we do. Remember the genealogies and events of this book take place during the time of the judges, okay? Which means it was a time in Israel's history where they were basically rejecting God. In fact, this probably happened about the time of Gideon, which is the middle of Judges, when they were literally hiding in caves and they were taking their threshing and they were doing it in secret places and hiding with their food like 
Boaz was when he was laying down last night. She mentioned he was laying down so it wouldn't get stolen overnight. That's this is the time of Gideon, okay? They were suffering. But the people of Israel were suffering because they were doing things their own way. They weren't doing things God's way. And of course, we saw Elimelech's family see the nosedive his took because they made all these bad choices. But God brings them back to his doorstep so he can bless them here and have this kid, Obed, be born. Now, Boaz was more than willing to redeem Ruth. He was more than willing to pay the price to bring her into his family. The money, the kid, the bachelorhood, he was more than willing to pay all those prices. And that's what redemption actually means. It means to purchase, to buy something back. And we know that Jesus did that for us. The bigger picture is that Jesus did that for us. He left behind his father and his throne to purchase us, to buy us back at a price. He was born in a humble family and basically in a shed. (laughs) He suffered through colds and flus and all kinds of bodily fluids that we all have to deal with. How humiliating, he's the God of the universe. He dealt with being separated. He dealt with being exhausted. He dealt with being misunderstood. And of course, then he paid the ultimate price, right? To be mocked and beaten and rejected and spit upon and nailed to a cross and have thorns beat into his head and big stakes put through his wrists and his ankles. But the worst of all was when God the Father had to turn his face away from him so that he could pay for our sin so that we wouldn't have to. He suffered all of that and willingly paid that in order to buy us back, to purchase us. You know, I know that uh, many of you have had the blood of Christ applied to your account. You are redeemed. But I know that there are some here that aren't, either because you're confused, maybe because you're deceived, maybe because, well, frankly, you're neither of those. You just admit flat out, I'm not there, and I don't want to be. Not all of you are confused or deceived. Some of you don't want it. It's never more clear to me than at baptisms. Do you ever notice there's always someone who says, I thought I was a Christian, and then one day I woke up and realized I wasn't. Um, Especially those who say they've been at our church for a long time and hear this truth for a long time. So without apology, the genealogy of Boaz and Ruth and Obed and eventually David is going to remind me to tell you in point three that you need to be sure Be sure that he is your redeemer. And I'll say it without apology, even in a room like this. You gotta be sure that he's your redeemer. You might be confused, you might be deceived, or you might be flat out, I don't care. But if he's not your redeemer, you'll have to pay for your sin yourself. We don't want that. None of us want that for you. Hmm. And a weekend like this, I mean, if you're not really a Christian, a weekend like this must be so frustrating to you, frankly. It's all about trying to live to be a godly woman. I mean, it's hard enough when you know the Redeemer, let alone when you don't know the Redeemer. It's like, what's your motivation? Why would you even want to do this? I mean, it just be, must be so hard and so frustrating for you after a weekend like this. We don't live like this. We don't try to do these godly things that Ruth did to get saved to get redeemed. We try to live the way Ruth was a role model for us, 
because we are saved, because we are redeemed, because we have been purchased by Christ. I have to make sure you know that, those of you especially who aren't quite with us yet. So I want to say be sure that you know him. I know that in a room like this, some of you don't. I mean, Matthew 13 is really clear. It says that in the church there will be wheat and there will be weeds that grow up right next to each other and we won't know the difference. The Christians and non-Christians will end up going to church side by side until someday when it's all over and God says the angels will then separate them. Don't you do it. But someday, sadly, there will be people even that we thought were in that aren't in. Well, the amazing truth that Jesus was willing to buy us back was almost never more brilliantly illustrated than a story that I came across that happened 600 years ago. In Florence, Italy, in 1463, the city council in Florence, Italy, wanted a new monument. They wanted a new monument to stand in front of their city hall. And uh, so they hired a guy named Agostino de Duccio to build a gigantic statue in front of city hall. They wanted it to be a biblical character that would show both beauty and strength in this important spot in their city. Well, de Duccio went to the local quarry and had a big giant piece of marble cut out it was, I mean, giant. It was 19 feet. What do you think? Maybe 19 feet there, that screen? I don't know. Big piece of marble, okay? It's pretty big. He had this piece cut out, but unfortunately, the, the, the slab was cut too thin. And when we went to move it, they dropped it. And it cracked, and it had a gigantic crack through it. Well, Deducho said it, the stone is useless, and he demanded that another one be cut. And the city council said, no way. They refused. They said, we're not going to do it. So that piece of marble, it was broken, was set aside. Nobody did anything with it for 38 years. Fortunately for us and for the city of Florence, Italy, they approached one of their locals, a 26-year-old man whose name was Michelangelo, who had the vision and the creativity and the skill and the ambition to lock himself in a workshop and work on that piece of broken marble for the next three years. At the end of three years, it would take 49 men and five days to move the statue from his workshop to the front of City Hall. While they moved it, archways had to be deconstructed to get that thing through. Narrow streets had to be widened to get this 14-foot statue of David that Michelangelo had completed from a broken, cracked piece of marble that nobody else would touch. You know, we're broken and cracked and imperfect. And under other circumstances, nobody would take a chance on us. But Jesus did. He took you, he took me, with whatever we offer him. We may be marble, well, uh, we're not, but we're definitely cracked and broken. But in his hands, in the hands of a master, we become something precious and beautiful because he redeemed us. That's what Michelangelo did to that piece of broken marble. And Jesus does that to us. Boaz paid for Naomi and Ruth's freedom, and Jesus pays for ours but it doesn't count for anything unless we take the payment. We have to take the payment. 
Um, Erwin Lutzer, my husband's former pastor, puts it like this. He says, there's two books. There's your book with everything you've ever done. From the day you were born till today, every single thought you've had, every regret, every mistake. You got your book, your name's across the cover, and Jesus has a book. And in his book is all the perfect things, all the amazing things, all the time he didn't sin, all the righteous choices he made, and his book has his name on it. But at some point, the covers get ripped off. And Jesus takes his cover that says Jesus across it, and he says, let me take your book, let me take your insides, and let me put my cover on your insides and all the mistakes you've ever made. And uh, I'm gonna give you my book. I'm gonna let you take my book of all the things that I did right. And I'm gonna let you put your name on it. Your cover's gonna go on the top of that one. So all I have to ask you is, have you ever swapped books with Jesus? Has your record gone to his account? Has his deeds ever been put on yours? Because that's what it takes for the redemption to happen here with Jesus. There's no Boaz in the room, but there's Jesus in the room, and that swap has to take place. The book of his deeds has to have my name on it, and the book of my deeds has to have his name on it. We need to be sure. Just coming to this church, going to our Bible study, coming to the retreat, even being born into your family is not going to make that happen. You need to be sure that he's your redeemer. That is the upshot of the book of Ruth. Make sure that he's your redeemer. Now, I think it's pretty cool because as we sit here today, most of us in this room are Gentiles, right? There's maybe a few Jewish people among us. That's great, but almost all of us are Gentiles. I think it's pretty cool that this whole book and everything that happens here pretty much for the most part all happens, humanly speaking, because of a Gentile. And add to that a Gentile woman. God used a Gentile woman, humanly speaking, a sinner, an outsider, a Moabite. And through her womb, he eventually brought the savior of the world. It's pretty cool. Um, as we look at the genealogy again, there is another unsavory gal in this line. Salmon, as I told you before, is probably the great-grandfather of Boaz. Salmon was married to Rahab, the prostitute, who during the time of... Uh, the conquest of Jericho had hidden the spies and obviously was a Gentile before but came under the protection of the wings of the God of Israel as Ruth had. Well, she's in this lineage here. And of course, David shows up right at the end. Well, the kid that he has that will eventually become the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ himself was born through another unsavory woman, Bathsheba, right? It's pretty interesting that God uses these women who are sometimes undesirable in whatever way you want to make it undesirable, and yet they're in the line of Christ. They're in his lineage. It's pretty, pretty amazing that God would embrace and in this book use imperfect people like that. And what a beautiful picture that is of his compassion. Those that have been forgotten, shunned, and turned away, he still loves and he still uses, which means he can use you and me too. Even if you don't think you're all that great. Even if you think you're a piece of broken marble. He loves you not based on your merit or your pedigree or your worthiness. He loves you for one reason only, because of his grace, just like he did the Moabite named Ruth. I don't know if you know the Redeemer yet, but I want you to make sure. If you don't know him, 
I want you to talk to the person who brought you or talk to the people as you drive down the hill, whether that's on the bus or in a car, but make sure that you talk to somebody about this Redeemer. We'd be glad to tell you our story and how he helped us see that we were broken, but we could be precious and that we are sure that our sins have been paid for. Well, Ruth was a godly woman, and she was definitely rewarded today. We saw her loyalty on Friday. We saw her work ethic on Saturday morning. We saw her obedience last night, but what was she rewarded with? She was with, rewarded with redemption to the nth degree, as complete as redemption could possibly be. Not only did she get bought and paid for and be put in a secure home with a family, but eventually, at the end of time, she will also be redeemed with the rest of us through the blood of Jesus Christ, who paid for her sin. A man named Charles Wesley had a long and winding journey to figure this out himself, maybe like some of you. He grew up in a Christian home, um, and he had a, a particularly godly mother who made sure that all of her children knew the Bible and lived the Bible. She was big on that. But Charles left home before he realized, and he was actually even a missionary, trying to reach people for Christ, before he realized that, yes, he looked like a Christian. Yes, everyone thought he was a Christian, but that he'd never been changed from the inside, that his salvation was never um, anything but an external uh, conversion, an external change of his life to be what his mother had taught him to be. He never had that internal change. He never had any assurance of his salvation. But after this winding room of figuring out that he wasn't a Christian, even as a pastor, basically, he becomes a Christian. And he sits down almost immediately and writes a hymn that will become one of his most famous of his 6,000 hymns he wrote. In this hymn, he expressed all that God had done for him and the awe that he felt at his Redeemer and what his Redeemer had done for him. It's a hymn called, And Can It Be? And if Ruth was here today and she was thinking about her Redeemer, I'm sure she would be also in awe, just like Charles Wesley was as he thought about his Redeemer. Ruth was thinking about how Boaz chose to pay such a high price for her. We should all be thinking about how Jesus chose to pay such a high price for us. And I'm going to read the lyrics of And Can It Be for you. If you're not a Christian while I'm reading, I would ask you to ask yourself, why? Why am I not? If I know I'm going to have to pay for my sin, why am I not willing to make him my redeemer? And what are my questions? And what are my concerns? And who do I need to talk to? But if you're sitting here and you do, you're sure there was a day and time when you understood your sin and you surrendered your life and you turned to him and you now follow him. I'm gonna have you listen to the lyrics and be in awe of the redeemer that did so much for you. I'm gonna read the lyrics and I want you to stay right where you are, right where you are right now. The only thing I want you to do, no, no closing, no moving. The only thing I want you to do is close your eyes and I want you to think in awe of what your Redeemer has done for you. As soon as I'm done reading Charles Wesley's amazing words, our worship team's gonna sing it, and we're all gonna stand and sing it with them. And then we're gonna leave, and that's it. Retreat is over. 
Here's what he wrote right after he became a Christian. Charles Wesley said, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne, and I claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. Let's pray. God, sometimes I truly am blown away that you would take a broken piece of, I wouldn't even say marble, granite like me and um, would have plucked me out of a family that didn't know you, didn't follow you, just maybe like roots. And yet you showed me how to see my sin for what it was and realize that you were my only hope. And God, I pray for my friends here. I pray for those here that know you and are sure of it. I pray that as they sing this song, their hearts would rejoice and they would remember afresh what you have done for them. But most of all, I wanna pray for my friends here that aren't sure. And I know it's not just because they, you know, are brand new to the retreat. Some of them have been here for a long time. Some have been our church for a long time. But they know in their heart that they've never really, really turned from their sin to follow you. They've never done what we talked about last night and said, I will do whatever you ask, Christ, as Ruth did to the God of Israel. So God, I pray for those that don't know you right now, and I pray for them to be bold to talk to someone, to tell someone, I need to talk about this with you. Let's think about it together. Help me. But Lord, for those of us that know you, I pray that right now would be a time of rejoicing and that your heart would be pleased, not only in the words that we sing right now, but they would be pleased with the women that we are that are leaving this place to go back home. And hopefully, I pray, follow the great example of Ruth this godly woman that we saw this weekend, who was loyal, who worked hard, who was obedient, and today who waited well for you to reward her. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this weekend. Thank you for being our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.